0: Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film, I'm Joel Marshall.
1: And I'm Kamala Lopez-Dawson and we have the pleasure of sitting here today with Dwayne Johnson Cochran, director of Note, Uh, I worked with him on a film called Love and Action in Chicago. Hi. Hi, Welcome. how
2: are you? Nice seeing you again Kamala, I haven't seen you in a long time.
1: (laughs) time I was here, was
2: that a party maybe at your house?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Maybe it was.
2: Yes it was, outside. Birthday party. Birthday party, it was very fun. And Joel, nice seeing you again. Nice seeing you, too. Absolutely.
1: So, Duane, um, you're from Chicago, correct?
2: I'm originally from Chicago, born and raised there. And uh, I grew up there. I uh, went to high school and college in Chicago, and I uh, wanted to be a journalist for many years. Um, And I did work as as a journalist for a while um, for public broadcasting. I meandered into advertising worked for Burrell Advertising for a couple of years as a producer, producing commercials for them. But I always wanted to write. And I, I had this idea in Chicago that I would find a partner, and we would find a script, and we would produce movies out of Chicago. That was my plan. But well, we never did find anybody we thought was really great in Chicago. I didn't know David Mamet. <laughs> He'd already become great before I was into this. And uh, so one day I had a weird a Confluence of events that happened I broke my ankles Both? Both of them Playing soccer Wow uh, My girlfriend and I Were gearing up For a great summer And uh, I would be playing Soccer together And we I fell And someone fell on me And then someone Fell on me again And <coughs> And my ankles broke Whoa. I kind of hobbled home And She said You ruined my My summer
0: <laughs> <laughs> The nerve of the, the nerve
2: of you Ruined my summer I said, well, I'm sorry, (laughs) but, you know, I've always wanted to write. I can't go to work right now. we got a wheelchair, and we sat in my apartment. Uh, We had a pretty nice place in Chicago. And I just, you know, thought, okay, it'd be nice to figure out maybe I could be a writer finally, because I always wanted to write. I always was writing in college and high school. I was editing my newspaper in college, University of Illinois. And I just thought it'd be great. So I wrote, I had a, a script that somebody had sent me, and it just, I knew it could be better. And I looked at it and I discarded it, and I decided that I was going to write a script that I could make. And I looked at the, I was totally into Italian neorealism, totally into great European films. That's where I was raised on. I went to the Art Institute at Chicago in the graduate program, and um, I just was immersed into film. You know, at that time, there was no DVDs really, no VCRs. I was just going. To the movies and seeing tons and tons of movies, like a lot of people in Los Angeles, you realize they've had these educations by watching, not necessarily by going to to film school. And I remember um, one film that I loved, which was was the Car Thief, was the Bicycle Thief, by De Sica. And I said it'd be great to put that story in Chicago and make it something that would be about what's going on in Chicago right now. So I decided to make The Bicycle Thief, The Car Thief. I wrote it. And um, three or four months later, I was done. I thought it was a pretty good script. I uh, sent it to 20 people, 10 people I knew and 10 I didn't know. And they all came back and said they liked it. Wow. So I decided to go to the IFP in New York and just took my scripts with me. It's just 20 scripts. I, mean, I don't know, a box of scripts. And handed to people at the IFP, independent film market. And uh, I got a couple of calls, they liked it. So I figured, okay, I'll be bold now. And I just sent it to uh, three agents. I was at the time working for public broadcasting. I was a producer for PBS in Chicago, making the documentaries for them. And I was having a good time making documentaries, but I knew I didn't want to be here forever. you know. And I had this script that people liked. So I, I sent it to CAA, William Morris, Triad, which was around then, and leading ours, which uh, turned into UTA, and and they all took a while. But one day I got a, a phone call from CAA while I was doing pledge night. I was a guy behind the booth directing someone in a begathon, which is what we call them, begging for money. And you beg and you say, Tonight, please call in now. We are having this great Lawrence Welk thing tonight for you. Please you know, And I was like, Okay, take camera one, camera two. I was, you know, behind the, the booth. And uh, someone called me from CAA, it was a secretary, and she said, uh, listen, uh, we read the script, we really like it, we're going to give it to the agent next week, but who in town has seen the script? I said, oh, God, oh, 20 people here, love it. And then it's my mother and father love it, and some other people, no, no, <laughs> this, this town, <laughs> L.A. So, well, you got it, and some other people in L.A., three other agents. They said, okay, we'll call you next week. And they called next week and said, can you come out? Wow. And... We, I met with an agent, signed me after a couple of months, and I got a lot of writing jobs. It didn't make, and I made interesting decisions at that point. You know, you, and I, I know as a writer, and I turned into a director, but you, you uh, at the time, it was like 1991, you make decisions on your, on what you want to be. And I knew I was a writer, but I also wanted to direct. And I remember sitting in this agent's office, and it was one of those decisions you make that kind of is a fork in the road. And he said to me, and there was three other agents there, and they were saying, "Listen, this film we can get made. We can get this thing at Sundance. Uh, we feel this film could really do well. It could be a real calling card for your career. And uh, I was you know nervous and like, where do I sign?" And you guys are you know, you know you're talking the same talk I'm talking." And, And then the meeting was almost over, and they said to me, Oh, before we go, we're all standing up. Would you be interested in some writing assignments? And uh, I said, Sure. And not saying that that is the ultimate decision, but I I saw the energy shift, because the minute they know, an agent knows, that they can make money on you as a writer, they may not have that much energy to make money on you as a writer-director. Really? And I saw them, and it, and you know, subsequently they just sent me out as a writer. And they really kind of dropped the idea of trying to get my film financed and trying to get it going at, as an independent film. And it was just, you know, just the energy of that conversation kind of fell away. Because I would go into a room, and I would pitch my ass off. <laughs> and I would sell. And I would sell a pitch and sell another pitch, and I'd get one writing assignment after another. And, you know... You get, they get paid. I get paid. My life changes. You know, you become a writer. I quit my job it's PBS. And it's a great thing. But the idea of being the writer-director, as opposed to a working writer, it, it, they're two, different, two things. different things.
0: And when you say writing assignments, what do you mean by that? What kind of writing assignments?
2: Studio um, assignments. You know, you go in for um, a meeting with, you know, Studio X, Y, Z, Disney, Warner Brothers. I, I, my first one was Fox. Um, a movie called Midnight Basketball, um, a true story about people who started a midnight basketball league in um, Philadelphia, New York, and Chicago. And I researched it. Fox paid for it and said, "Let's do a movie about it." Paid me, did three or four drafts. They so said, "Let's do it," and it didn't happen. Barry Diller was in charge of Fox at the time. He wasn't really interested in basketball. So that didn't happen. <laughs> um,
0: how does it work with that, though? Do you get paid anyway, even if it doesn't happen? And how? Oh yeah,
2: with writing assignments, you know, uh, the way they work, and you know, it's the same way now. I just uh, we'll talk a little about how it is now. But when I first started, you know, it's you you sign a contract. Um, they like your pitch or like your writing, because mine was a pitch and my sample. They said, "Okay, well, you're the guy for this this job." Um, you write a treatment. It could be a part of your deal. or could not be part of your deal.
0: And what's a treatment?
2: A treatment would be um, a sort of a dramatic uh, realization of what the screenplay would be like. Now, there are step outlines, there's outlines, and then there's treatments. I had to learn the difference.
1: Can you tell our audience what the difference is? Yes.
2: Um, well, first I'll, I'll tell the audience what a pitch is, and then okay. we'll go those those other three Great. things. Um, I was on the way to a meeting um, to meet Producer X, and the agent said, you're going to go and pitch someone your next idea. I, I didn't know what the word meant. I just got to L.A., and I drove in to meet this producer. He says, tell me what you like. Tell me what you're going to do next, and I pitched him a movie. And I did not know what I was doing, but I gave him three acts. I gave him an idea what this movie was going to be like, and I was flapping away but not really doing it well. But the idea was that I would give someone a dramatic visual realization of what this movie is going to be about and what it's going to look like in three acts with act breaks possibly and turning points possibly done well in the story verbally. And then some kind of ending that they can walk out and say, okay, we like it or we don't. In the treatment, it's all that done in in a literary style. Sometimes you add a little dialogue in there. Sometimes you say it starts this way. Sometimes you talk about voiceover. Sometimes you, and many times, I would put in the actual breaks of the acts. You know, Act One, Act Two, midpoint, Act Three, epilogue. Step outlines, on the other hand, are just maybe like the cards you write. You know, that you when you write a screenplay, you write seventy-five cards. It may be those cards, and you reduce them down to twelve or fifteen cards per act. So you add some scenes to a card, add a few more scenes, you collapse things. Give them, idea, give them an idea what this film's about. And then there's other outlines which are a little more detailed, but clearly using your treatment and pulling from that. So I was writing those, tons of them, I still do. And sometimes they pay you for them, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they, you know, our agents saying, don't write a treatment. Okay, let them pay for that. Don't leave a treatment behind. Because they'll, you pitch them and you gave them a treatment. Oh my God, they'll, they won't buy the project. Let them just hear it. And so you have to learn how to pitch. You have to learn how to tell your story.
1: But is that true that 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 you shouldn't leave a treatment behind?
2: You shouldn't. I don't think so. I I've had really interesting experiences where I have really pitched a compelling story, and just. Oh, I have the treatment left it on the table. Thank you. (laughs) And then you hear back, we really loved it, (coughs) but uh, we would like to see it executed. You spec that out, you know.
1: And by spec that out, it means uh, write it for free. Free,
2: and then we'll look at it later, like anybody else would, which is basically saying no, thank you. And I had to learn your verbal elocution, the way you pull this off, how you project the confidence in a room in a pitch. Especially if they like your work, it's more important than actually having it on on a page in a treatment form because they have read your screenplays. They know you know this story. You've pitched it to them. You're going to go and pitch it to somebody else, so they have to make a decision. And there were times early, I think in the early 90s and mid-90s where Um, I've gone on pitch meetings where I would go six or seven times in a day and get them to fight with each other on a pitch. I had it happen on two occasions, where you start at 9 o'clock, you end at 7, your agent does a tally at the end, two people want to buy it, there's an offer on the table, blah, blah, blah. It happens now, but it happens on a different level. Writers who have made lots of money in movies are pitching things and putting it out there for, for auction. So I think before, new writers were coming in and doing it, and it was fine. But since everything's been cut back considerably, now it's going to be only produced writers can go in there and do this kind of you know, you know, bidding situation.
1: Why do you think that it's been cut back considerably?
2: I think in uh, the 2001, uh, they got rid of a lot of writers' deals, and they stockpiled a lot of scripts right, after, right before 9-11, actually, because we had that de facto strike. The Writers Guild. Then, and 2001 was a real big turning point, I believe, for all the writers in town. A lot of writers lost deals because we didn't strike, but we almost struck. And so that those impending months, they just sort of stockpiled everything they wanted, and they shot things quickly, and they put out what they wanted to put out. But if you remember, in the like from '95 to like '99, there were scripts being sold for million, two million dollars every week. We don't see that anymore, you know. Million two, million five, you know, you know, bomb on a train, bomb on a bus, you know, Die Hard in the supermarket, Die Hard here, Die Hard, you know, it was ridiculous. I was at William Morris at the time. I was being represented by them, and I was in the middle of that, you know, where I had a script, and my two agents were the king of it, king of selling these things, and uh, they were confident mine was gonna sell for that number, these these numbers. And in fact, they would open my script up and say there was too much not enough white space on the page. Rewrite this. I said, would you read it? No, no, no. They want to read fast, quickly, less words on the page. They would just open it up and just breeze through it. Too many too many too many pages, too, too many words on the page.
1: What is it? it does, does that mean they want more dialogue and less exposition?
2: More dialogue, less less body copy. You know, just this idea that we are we are in a, a selling mode. People are buying from us. We have a track record. We've sold ten to twelve specs in the last eighteen months. We want to keep selling them. Our specs look like this. <laughs> that's what I was being. That's what I was. It was hearing. I was, you know. Forget the writing style. Forget the idea that you want to create a style. You know, it was, it was crazy. And I was like, okay. So I went home and just cut a line here, cut a line there. You know, create a, a character who didn't exist so I can combine two other characters. You know, you just feed the system. And it doesn't help your writing particularly well. You know, it, it, makes, you, it makes you get paid, but it didn't help your writing. So, but I remember that. It was a very intense time when the specs were going.
1: I actually sold a spec during that time in 95.
2: told me, I remember that.
1: It was one of the top 10 spec sales of that year. Yeah. It never got made.
2: It got made. I sold a spec in uh, 95, 96, uh, 95, 96, 97. I was on the verge of selling something in 96 where I got a phone call uh, on a Thursday morning that we were gonna go for 450 as a bottom. Okay. What's that mean? 450 would be the 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 offer, the low offer. Uh Okay, and uh, it was at Disney, and uh, we have to get it out. My agent had not been part of this engineering of the spec. I had dealt with an executive at Disney, and she was the one who was taking it in to her boss, and she let the boss read the night before. So the boss told her, 450, in the parking lot at 8 o'clock in the morning. 450, that's our, that's our bottom. So I took that information at 9 o'clock, gave it to my agent. He says, what? He was first mad that I hadn't been, he hadn't been involved, but then he had a number. Right. So now he's like, Okay, okay, I'm pissed at you, but okay, let's deal with this number now, okay? So now we start from 450. And he said, Look, I'm gonna send out to these people. So he went off and started sending out to all these people with this number in his hand. So he had, you know, a leverage. Bar- leverage and a bargaining chip. So we got up to six, we got up to from one other person, and he said, "Let's wait till the weekend, till Monday, and make sure it's real." So we had one offer at six, we had the four fifty bottom offer, and then Saturday came. I went out of town, went to Chicago. I figured, I'll be rich when I get back. You know,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> told my mother, "Guess what? I'm gonna buy you this and that." And on <laughs> uh, Sunday. I got a phone call from the executive saying that the person who, the vice president who liked it, gave it to the president, Mm -hmm. and he didn't think it would be a Disney movie. So the 450 offer was taken off the table. Mm -hmm. And the 600 something offer was contingent based on the other offer. So I called my agent up on the Sunday. He said, We don't have Disney anymore. He says, All right, we'll just fake it with the other guys. We'll just say it's still there. And apparently they knew. There was, I mean, you know, yeah. developing people taught. Sure. So we had no offer Monday morning. And it was dead.
0: Then it was dead altogether. It was dead altogether. Does that mean it's, you can't even take it other people? Or? You can
2: take it, but it was like... the, Once the, the hype dies the auction down. The option is over. You know, it's like, your hype, the hype's over. It's like, you died twice. Two people pulled their offers. So. But
1: I, I have a counter uh, example here. When when we went out with Mr. <coughs> Hawaii, this is a script I wrote with Jay LaCopo back in the early '90s. Um, <coughs> our original agent sent it to every studio in town in a very sort of willy-nilly manner, and they all passed. Mm. Subsequently, <coughs> we changed agents, and he had. Auctions going, bidding going with the same exact companies that had passed on it, with the same exact draft that they had passed on.
2: Even with the same name on the script.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: That's great. So you can go back. I think that my agent was a little shy. i <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> I also think that he might have been, the, the wind might have been out of his sails primarily because of the fact that he didn't engineer this. Mm. He was jumping on a moving train. And he, you know, i was I was being a rebel. I was doing something outside of his purview. He didn't know I was dealing with his executive, and I think if he had been part of it at the beginning, he'd probably have been a little bit more you know interested in trying to go back out with it and creating a whole new bit of a buzz. And I could probably put it out again now
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know if I wanted to i could it's not an untimely story um but that was back then so.
1: Well, let's speak a little bit about this relationship with the agent, because I think, um, first of all, it's remarkable that you just sent blindly your scripts out to the top four agencies in the world, really. And who did you send them to?
2: Um, this is an interesting story. There's a, a friend of mine named Ted Shen. Um, he's since passed away, um, a great friend of mine. Um, he had had a relationship or a conversation with an agent uh, named Rob Scheidlinger, who worked at CAA. He had been at ICM, and he, I think he recently got to CAA in L.A. And Ted had met him, and he, he was part of IFP Chicago. And Ted said he read the script, he really liked it. He said, you should send it to this guy, Rob Scheidlinger at uh, CAA. I said, why? He says, well, I was in his office, and I looked down, and I saw the village voice on the floor. I think he would go for this. I said, "Really? He said, yeah." The Village Voice. I think he's kind of liberal. I said, "Okay," because <laughs> your story is about this black family trying to make it in the south, the west side of Chicago, and it's a car, and you know, the same story of the bicycle thief. I said, "All right." So I wrote a letter, and I had a, I had a, one more thing in my, in my back pocket. A. I sent my script to a casting director. director in New York who had a number of great credits who wanted to produce my film but had not produced anything before.
1: Who was that?
2: Her name was uh, Pat Golden. She had cast um, The Killing Fields. She had cast uh, Blue Velvet, Platoon, uh, a number of Volker Schnordorf films. Uh, a wonderful casting director. Met with her a few times. She says, I want to make this movie. I said, okay. So we sat around and talked and we kept talking and we kept talking, and we kept talking, <laughs> and it went on for a while, just talking, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was working at PBS, and I said, "Well, we've been talking for nine months. Uh, can we send somebody? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I could do this too. If you want me to, I could I have a Federal express package. I have stationery. <laughs> I could send it. You know. Well, let's just keep talking. You know. And she never did anything, and I, I was frustrated. You know, I got into this person who really liked it, but there was nothing moving. And I, Ted, told me about this this uh, agent. So I sent it to Rob Shylinger, and I had met a couple of people at IFP, at, uh, and they had mentioned um, a couple of names. One at William Morris, um, and um, one I forgot his name, but another guy who I think still is uh, at um, William Morris. Um, he was married to a, a friend of a friend. So I had these names, didn't know him. My letters basically said, "Hi, my name is blah blah blah." It was on PBS stationery. It was in a PBS Manila envelope, so it could have very well been an official package. It was. It felt like a script if you picked it up. You know, it had two thirty, which was a price of, you know, sending a script at the time. So they probably looked at it and says, "Oh, PBS mail. Let's open this up." Um, but the letter was clear. The letter said. My name is this. I do this for a living. I wrote a screenplay about this. I have a producer who wants to make it. I think I need an agent. That was it.
1: That's it. That's it.
2: I have a producer. Here's our credits. I think I need an agent because, you know, we haven't done a deal yet. Can you help me? And agents tell me that they read the first 10 pages and they like it. They, they call. If they don't like it, they move on. Well, a very enterprising assistant for Rob Schaldinger read my script. And she read it, and she gave it to three other assistants, and they all liked it. So they took it on themselves to call me, and when I was doing pledge night, and said, "Well, can you come out here? We like your... Well, you should... we should we don't let Rob read it first, and if he likes it, then, you know, you can come out." And I was, I was through the roof, you know, and I went out and met him, and we made a deal.
1: So now when we go back to um, the fact that you sort of circumvented your agent uh, by dealing with that Disney exec directly, Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about how the relationship between the agent-client works and how, um, because sometimes they are not doing enough and so you feel the need to go out and find these opportunities, but then they don't like that, so...
2: They don't like that, and my agent at the time I didn't feel was doing enough. Um, But we hear that from every writer, every director, every every actor. actor. They all say they're not thinking about me. So we're not unique in this, you know. And I think one agent told me one thing one time. I think it was at William Morris. He one agent said to me, "Listen, it's your career. We get ten percent. Ninety percent is your is your job." And he wasn't BSing me. It wasn't like he was, like, trying to take the onus off him. He just said, it's up to you. Um, So I take that literally. I'll go make the deal then. I'll work hard. I'll try to find a way to make my career work. Yes, they take 10%. Sometimes you don't want to pay them because they don't do anything. But sometimes they do. Sometimes they, you know, send you out to a lot of meetings, and they did for a while. Uh, people's careers go up and down. You know where you go out constantly, you don't go out for a year. And I remember I went out sometime, ten times a month, you know, on writing jobs, just to talk and generals or whatever. Relationship, um, I think, with an agent is is kind of, um, it's really how hot you are, how productive you are. If you can write, and I, I know I um, friend, um, a good writer, friend of mine. Actually he's a mediocre writer, but he writes constantly. he says, The reason why I keep this agent, because I'm always giving him another spec. I said, Oh boy. That takes me a while to write a spec. You know? I'd rather get a writing assignment then I'll write a spec, you know, because you feel comfortable, you know, working on the spec. Because you have money from the writing assignment. <laughs> but and that I my life was like that for many times. I would write a spec, I get a writing assignment, I write a spec, you know, go back and forth. Um and I think that uh they like that you are handing them a new script every two months. You know, just hand them a new one. What do you think of that? What do you think of this? That's the genre you're going to be in? Great. Give me another comedy. You want to write action? Give me another one like that. Horror. Hmm, let's talk to the horror guy over here at Wayne Horse, you know, whatever. You know, there's a, a sense where you're constantly being productive. That's how you can keep your agent and, or your manager. And if you're not, um, then you fall back. And I've had that happen. I, I just wasn't productive. Other circumstances have happened where you just can't write or don't have any ideas or you don't have the right partner if you're writing as a partner or you just don't think what you're writing is really as good as the stuff you wrote before so you don't want to hand it to your agent, you know. And I've been fired by agents, you know. I've got new ones, you know. It's, it's really about keeping, because they're not your friends, and I had to learn that. I had to learn that. And it's a hard lesson. They are your business you know, partners, and you, they work for you. But they work for you only when you give them something to, to do to deal with.
0: How do you protect your writing from people
2: stealing it? Oh, well I'm a writer's guild member. Mm-hmm. So I just send it to the guild. You know,
0: I mean sometimes people say they <coughs> go in and they'll do a pitch mm-hmm. and then nothing will happen and then the next year they see on the T V something a lot like what they pitched and they feel like, oh that, that the the Studio just stole it from them. I hear people gripe about this kind of thing. Does that happen a lot? Is that something anyone can protect themselves from? Or is that just a bunch of sour grapes?
2: Well, I can't speak for TV. Um, I mean, I've worked, worked on two TV shows. But I definitely can speak for film. It does happen in film. And it does happen... Um, it, d- it does happen in ways which you... You know, you can't quite, you can't pinpoint how it happened, but it only, it mostly happens in film for people who are not represented or underrepresented or uh, are naive about, you know, who they're talking to. Um, There's this old story of my friend, uh, Keith Bozeman. He's a good friend of mine. He told me this story years ago. It was an interesting article in Premier Magazine about a guy who went into a big producer's office with this idea. And he told the idea to her and she said, Close the door. And he said, Are you represented by anybody? He says, No. And he says, Good, tell me the story. So he told the story. He said, Thank you. Thank you. Write that up. I think I would do something with that. Well, apparently, you know, he left, wrote it all up, and the amount of time it took him to write, which he wasn't, you know, a seasoned writer, but he was somebody trying to get a deal. She had this thing already written by someone else. The movie came out. And I'm sure he tried to sue her. But it was one of those things where, hey, access. You know, he had access to her. She had access to his idea. You know, it's all about who said, he said, she said. At the end of the day the idea was stolen. He was underrepresented. He was not represented. But I think the idea that as writers, we are rep- when, we, when we get an agent, a manager, or a lawyer to represent us, your ideas become the intellectual property um, that is represented by your representation. So when you put something out there to agent X or to, to producer Y or wherever, they have to deal with you and the people who represent you, or you can take them directly to uh, some kind of uh, arbitration.
1: Do you have an attorney as well?
2: Mm-hmm, yes.
1: Was it a 5% sort of a situation?
2: 5% to my attorney and 10 to my manager and 10 to my agent, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut one of these people out. <laughs> That's a lot of money.
1: <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, so was Love and Action in Chicago your first feature as a director?
2: As a writer director, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: How did you put that deal together?
2: Let's see. Um, I wrote the screenplay um, and I gave it to a, uh, a couple, of pro- couple of producers uh, I think you know both them, Danny Gold and uh, David Basuto and uh, they uh, had made one film with a company called Flashpoint which was a London based company that had made a deal to make I think 40, 50 films with this huge backing of uh, insurance-backed money, which was big in the 90s. So they had uh, they made Gods and Monsters. They had made uh, a number of other films. And some had done okay, and most of them did not so okay. But they had various companies. And so the two producers uh, said to me, I think we can get this movie made if you keep the budget at a certain level, if you show us you can direct it, and um, you can get a couple of stars that we can pre-sale in Europe, which is what their money kind of provided. You, you make a film where a couple of actors can get pre-sales in Europe, either TV or cable in Europe, or even theatrical. That gives them money. That, what pre-sales do, it gives you money back to the production. So the production's already made money on the film before you've even shot the film. And I found out in fact that it happened. You know, we had gotten Kathleen Turner and Jason Alexander uh involved early and they had sold those names. You know, the sales company involved with this film company had sold the names. And uh so it was up to me now to cast the leads. And I cast Courtney Vance and Regina King. So we took uh I gave the script to uh the two producers in February. We took the entire spring and summer putting it together. I worked directly with the producers every day, um, at a table just like this, a long table. Every day, went to their house. Every day, and got on the phone with sales agents, uh, producer reps, um, banks, and the company making the money, making the film. And we just pushed them and all the lawyers every day to the to the starting line. And we pushed and pushed and pushed till they finally gave a green light, and we got three million dollars. There's a lot of Stops and starts where they were not going to do it. They weren't sure about me directing. It was, I had to prove them, to them I could do it. Then, um, when I had proven that, we had to make sure that they were going to give us the money in a timely fashion in Chicago. And the reality was they wanted to make the film in Los Angeles. And I didn't want to make the film in Los Angeles because I knew they would be on my back. So I put in Chicago at the end of the script. <laughs> love and <in> action. <laughs> In Chicago.
1: (laughs) I wondered about that.
2: Yeah, it wasn't supposed to be. I just, I wrote a movie called Love in Action. I didn't want these guys to have anything to do with me while I'm making this movie. So I just put, you know, it's like, you know, know, Die Hard in Company La Poor, you know. Directed by. Directed by, yeah. I I just decided to do that because I did not want to have them breathing on my throat. You know, it's like, how about being literal, you know? Yeah. And, um, in one sense, it was a good move because they weren't that involved. But this was a, and I have to say, I'm glad I'm, I can talk about it. Now. It was a, a terrible company to work with. Uh, there were people in the company who were not filmmakers. They were, um, they were business people. Um, they did not know how to deal with directors at all. Um, they had a number of films where they had allowed the films to be shot, and they came in and just kicked the director out and recut the films themselves um, they they had no concept of giving a director a final cut or for that matter even a cut you know <laughs> you know uh, it was a travesty getting the film uh, actually finished because they brought in um this producer um, who you know worked with a, a lot of big movies, and she had a deal with them, and they just they brought her and, and she was like an elephant, she just came in and just said. Boom! I'm your producer. I'm gonna help you redo your movie because you didn't do your film right. I'm gonna be I'm going to fix it, and I'm gonna be a producer in your movie. And and she just kicked me out of the editing room. I was gone, and my two producers, of course, abandoned me completely. You know, I just had nothing. They were like they were like little pieces of paper that just blew away the second you know the company said anything. Um, I remember I was sitting in a meeting with. I showed them my first rough cut. I had been at it for two or three weeks. I gave him a. Nice rough cut. It was long, but I said, oh, we'll get down to where we need to be. I just want to show you what we have and some of the music, the tone, what the film's about, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, it's too long. Uh, They looked looked around the room and I says, "Um, how about you cut for a while to some producer, you know, on the project? We had like nine people who were producing the film. Five of them I never met. And so this was a clusterfuck, if I can say that. (laughs) It was terrifyingly bad Situation because I had a great time shooting it. All the actors had a great time making it. And the second we got into the editing room, I was pr- constantly pressured to be finished in three weeks of my cut. And then my editor was all of a sudden taking the side of the production company because she wanted to keep her job. And so they brought me back, and I, you know, and I got a new editor. And then they brought this elephant in, and she became <laughs> like, like on me, basically saying, "I'm going to do it my way." So I stole my, my film. I just took it. Oh! I I <laughs> I it was uh, I just took the film out of the uh, heading street one day, and I had met a number of people, and I, I, <laughs> I said I'm gonna do like you know Blake Edwards, and that's what be. I'm gonna take my film and I'm gonna get into a festival that will make you know at least give me a chance to showcase what I wanted to make as a film. So I took the uh, beta. Uh, SP copy of my film and sent it to June Giovanni, who was head of uh, the Toronto Film Festival. She was uh, in the sort of black section. And um, she called me up and says, I love your film. Uh, I want it in our festival, Toronto, war premiere. I said, great. I tell you right now, I'm fighting with the company. This may not be the cut you're going to get. She says, "Well, controversy is good. <laughs> it's always good to have a controversy in a film festival. So you guys work it out, but well, send me a cut by by you know August first, or whatever. So then I had to go back into this company, you know, who had basically walked me out the the building with guards and tell How them.
1: How'd you steal it if you were walked out the building? I was,
2: with- uh, I got a friend who gave me uh, access to a room, and I just went in there and took it. You know, I. I, I love it. I, just, I think uh, that's I cannot great." Deal with this. You know, these were people who were messing with my livelihood. You know, I wrote something. I directed it. I got all the actors. And these people who were not filmmakers, like if they were bond people. They were like, they owned a post house. They were people who were on the periphery of the business and came together because they were friends. They were taking so much money off the top in terms of their fees. We, we were over budget. I said, we're over budget because you took $500,000 off the top in fees. I mean, it was a... It's a difficult situation, and they were blaming me for being over budget. I said, "No, I shot the script. If you had read the script, you realize this is a script we want to make." And uh, they were just not bright people, and they were belligerent toward directors, all the directors they work with, and that's why this company is, doesn't exist today. Because they, it was called Prosperity Pictures, and they, because they just they pissed off agents, and, and actors, and directors, and um, so you know. We had to have this fight in the, in the mixing room, and the sound mix. We had to have this fight when we were cutting the film, final cut, to get ready for the festival. We had to have this fight every day about these little... They were sitting next to me every day trying to get what they want in. I'm trying to get what I want in. I don't even, know, don't even like them. They were not part of making this film. My two producers are now gone. They're not even in the situation. They were so mealy-mouthed and completely... Of no use, they were just out of the picture onto something else, so i 'm alone dealing with these people these uh, these you know very disrespectful, artless people, and uh, to, to, for the film to, have to come out have, to have come out at least watchable i 'm happy about my cut is a better cut, people really like it, and it 's a much better film but um, we had a, we had a great uh, premiere in in uh, Toronto. Uh, Regina King came up to uh, the premiere. We we sold the movie to HBO. All there, even in the the state was in. We sold it to them. Um, and you know the decision I had to make when we went up to do the Q and A because I had the producers there, I had the studio there, the company there. Do you lay out your dirty laundry? Mm. And with the press there and the buyers there and all these people from Toronto at a film festival and tell them how much you did not like the situation working with these people who did not know me from Adam, who just clapped at the film. Do you do that? Or do you just say, listen, i like to introduce the team and be gracious and stand over the fray. And I did the, you know, the latter because I realized that you know, no one knows what I went through. They just know what they saw. And for them to hear the dirty laundry, it gives, it's bad for you as a director. So I just, I let it go and uh, you move on. But it taught me a lot of lessons on how to get in business with people. Who, is, who are you in business with, you know? And it, <clears throat> it's difficult.
1: How do you, um, how would you, What? how could you translate those lessons to us so that we could uh, avoid going into business with bad people?
2: Well, I had somewhat blinders on dealing with two producers who um, were kind of shaky and shifty, you know, early on. I just, you know, when you laugh at people and hang out with people and have a good time with people, you don't, you realize there's certain character traits that you're probably not going to um, highlight in the back of your mind because you want to get your film made. You're not going to realize this guy just lied to the guy on the phone but it's to your behalf, so you're going to say, well, hey, it's helping me out, you know. But then you realize if he lied to him, he's going to lie to you, mm-hmm.
1: you know.
2: <laughs> and, you yeah, know, I had producers like that um, who...
1: That's like one of our other guests said, if something smells now, it's going to really stink later.
2: It's going to stink later, it, and it's, it stunk for me. I was, I was in the whole summer with them, working with them, and, you know, we had a very collegial... Very nice relationship, you know I would push them, they would, they would push back a little bit, we were friendly, you know uh, but <clears throat> there was not there was there was a, never a sense where I knew these guys were my friends. I was trying to be you know we try, you know it was a, a marriage that was slammed together. I didn't grow up with these guys I didn't make a film with these guys i didn't go to school with these guys, so you're in business with a producer who has their agenda. You don't think their agenda is to, you know, not side with you when you get into the editing suite. You don't think their agenda is to not be with you on the set, you know, and help you when you need things. You don't know what their agenda is. You know, so I think the lesson to learn in this as a writer-director when you're trying to make a film with people you don't know, producers who have money, find out what their agenda is. Deep down, what their agenda is, because that is a good question. What do you really want out of this? Money, credit, your wife in the movie. What do you want? <laughs> you know, um, if it's an independent film, if it's a studio film. You know their agenda. It's to make money, or to make something artistically that they can get an award uh, an award with. You know, uh, um, or they really believe in you as a writer director, and they would do anything they can to make this a great film because they believe in you as a writer director. Um, But I think when it comes to independent people, you you have to realize, you know, there's agendas. And if they're, they are not looking at you and saying, we really, really respect you as a writer-director. They're saying other things. Uh, They keep talking about money or, you know, things that, I mean, money's important. We all have to think about it all the time because we're putting it on the screen. But if their paycheck is more important than getting the film made, which is definitely was for my producers, then... You know, I I think that's a red flag.
0: Now Dwayne, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing, what you're working on now?
2: <clears throat> well, let's see. Um, I'm working on four things. <laughs> um, I wrote a movie in 1996 that I uh, sold to DreamWorks to, screen, to uh, Steven Spielberg's company, and I they didn't make it, but I, I got it back in kind of a turnaround situation where they allowed me to buy it back. So I'm now trying to put that film together. It's called My Tribe Is Lost. I think you read that. I love
1: that movie. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. It's a beautiful movie. Thank you,
2: thank you very much. I hope, hopefully we can make that one day. Um, It's uh, it's a period piece, takes place in Chicago during the late 60s and uh, uh, the Panthers and were we're part of um, the life of Chicago. And uh, it's about a black family moving from a black community to a white community and uh, what they experience. In this, in that, in that move, so that film I'm still trying to make. It's been a hard road to make. It's four or five million dollars, but you know it's it's hard that my other film, Love in Action, didn't do well because if I had, I would probably have made that film by now. Mm. I, I know that for certain. Um, I'm also writing a movie for uh, Angela Bassett and Courtney Vance for their company, um, a book adaptation called Erasure, and it's a, a great book. By a writer named Percival Everett, um, and I'm on the second or third draft now, and I think it's going to be a good vehicle for their company and uh, possibly starring roles. Um, I'm working on a documentary, which I'm finishing, about a jazz drummer named Cahill Elzabar. Um, he's been around for um, 30 years. I've been friends with him for 20 years, and he. Um, he is a very icon individual in terms of his percussion, um, as a percussionist. We have an interesting relationship of 20 years where I've made two films about him, two small half-an-hour films about his life. And he asked me to go on the road with him last year. Um, and I was like, well, I'm busy. He says, no, I'm going to buy you an HD camera, okay? Come on the road with me. So I said, Okay. So I went on a road with this guy for uh, the longest month of the year, February, uh, where we we went. Uh, that's Black History Month, which is uh, the month where everybody who's black and artistic gets invited to every university, every <laughs> college, everything to be you know to do their wares. You know, and I think a lot of musicians, a lot of artists, a lot of painters, a lot of uh, poets make their living in February wow. if you're black because uh, we it's been deemed our month. So I was seeing that firsthand. <laughs> You know, how, you know, he go to, you know, Reed College in Portland and Erie Arts Center in Erie, it's a Pennsylvania, and Baltimore Arts Center in New York and San Francisco and L.A. We were all over the place, 20 cities. He was teaching. He was, it were concerts, but it was his idea that he was trying to be a, a great teacher and performer, dealing with some personal issues in his life that were almost insurmountable about, you know, just issues and I was documenting all of this so we're finishing the film now Um, and it it turns out that George Lucas actually called him up in the middle of this whole thing and told him that he was his favorite drummer his favorite Mm -hmm. percussionist and wants to make a documentary about him so I was there when that call came in so now all that's part of my film Um, and also uh, the uh, fourth thing I'm working on is a um, another documentary that Regina King who was in my last film uh, has hired me to direct, co-direct with her. Uh, it's, um, I'm leaving in two weeks for Sierra Leone. I'm going to Africa to shoot a movie about a small, um, a bunch of American, LA American kids who has who have actually adopted a small school that had no roof in Sierra Leone, in a small village, and they actually are going to build this school with these kids in this small village. So yeah. the documentary is about these Americans going to help these African kids in Sierra Leone who went through a very bitter war, Uh, the blood diamond war, I guess you would call it, Um, conflict diamonds were part of it. And uh, at the same time, Regina King found out, the reason why she's doing it is because she found out that her her DNA has matched her to this area of the world. Wow. So she's going to try to find the the actual village where she may be from. So it's going to dovetail into that too. So, what
1: beautiful projects! I'm working
2: on those four projects.
1: That's great, Dwayne. It's very exciting. Hopefully,
2: <laughs> hopefully it all will come out good in the end. Um,
1: well, with my tribe is lost. Do you have um, any actors that are attached to that project?
2: I do. I have, um, as of last, um, Regina is attached. Regina King is attached to his, uh, his, to play my mother, actually. I have got to say it's a true story So she's going to play my mother Very interesting She's younger than me But uh, I love it Yeah <laughs> uh, Most deaf um, Anthony Anderson Jennifer Coolidge um, And we're trying to get Common To be involved Who's from Chicago He's a rapper So that's Those are the ones Who are attached right now
1: Wow well, well I don't think You'll have any problem Getting that made I
2: hope so I mean we've we were so close so many times. It, it was one of those movies that uh, when we sold it to DreamWorks, DreamWorks had just been formed. And um, we were very excited. Uh, Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald had just come in, and they were like, okay, we're going to make this film. And I had a director attached. And uh, I think Stephen was, uh, he sent me an email in 1995 saying, I'm going to make this film. I'm going to make it between three and $6 million you know, nice new actors, going to be great. And I was very really excited because, you know, it was like we were on this path of making it, going to make this film. And, and uh, then a year went by and nothing happened. And then another year, and then he, he wrote me another letter because I wrote him a letter saying, when are you going to make my movie? You know, <laughs> you told me you're going to make my movie. When are you going to make it? I wrote him this long letter he wrote back in a nice little letter saying, well, uh, we got to make these other things first, you know, to establish who we are as DreamWorks, but we'll make yours in '97." And it was like, we can't wait because we're talking about your movie all the time here. And I was like, that was very nice of him to do that. But I think over time, you know, I think that company, um, I don't know, it, it, it seems like they become the same type of studio as every other studio. And I personally believe if they had done my movie first, it would have been pretty cool. You know, it would have been interesting to do a small film about a, a small black family in Chicago as your first film. They of The Peacemaker, (laughs) you know, which is a big Hollywood movie, but, you know, they have done small little films. They did American Beauty, which was a relatively small movie, you know, um, and they did very well with that film. So, you know, it just, I think that they seem to be a little more conventional. And they, they, you know, listen, this is a great studio. They've done some great work there, but I wish they had done my film.
1: Have you um, tried to speak with Armian Bernstein? no. I just have a good feeling. I love all the projects that he picks to do. They're really oh, moving and,
2: and, uh, um, at at uh, Beacon. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? He. Uh, I wonder if they read my script over there. I think they did because uh, um, one of the producers, Paul uh, uh, Peter Almond.
1: Well, you know who's good friends with him is Lizzie Borden's husband,
2: Rudy, Rudy oh. Langley. Yeah. 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 But you should
1: get it back th- to them.
2: I think they did. They read it already. I think they did. But see, Rudy's not with them anymore. Oh. He's not.
1: uh, (laughs) You should listen to Karen Black's interview. Okay, I will. Because one of the things she says is just do it again.
2: Send it back over there.
1: Send it back over there with the new intention that they will get it this time and they will make it.
2: Maybe I should. Because Army Bernstein's a good man.
1: He's a great, great
2: producer. Chicagoan, too, you know.
1: Is he? Yeah. It's perfect.
2: Yeah, I think he's from Chicago.
1: Okay, we are, before
0: Justin's arm falls off, I want to get to the (laughs) end of the show, which is, we do this thing called Film Bites, where uh, if you have any advice for the filmmaker out there, um, this is the place to give the little sound bite for them. Um,
1: I have one. You have one? Yeah, I mean, I like to relate it to what I've learned from from the person that we interviewed, and I think that um, one of the things that I just learned is uh, there is no agency or entity or sort of monolithic establishment entity that is too big for you to send something to yes. and get a response. Mm-hmm. Just do it. I mean, doesn't really matter what the conventional wisdom is about CAA or DreamWorks or any of this stuff. Just go ahead, write your letter, believe in yourself, write a great script, send it out, and you could you know, get a great response like Dwayne did.
2: I think that's really what I I teach at USC also, and I I think that I tell my students that, you know, my story of how I got that script out there uh, just not only shows you that a good script can be seen, can be found, it, it can be unearthed, but they are looking for a good script. It's not like they're, like, not looking. They are looking, and they're looking then, they're looking now, they're going to keep looking because stories are stories, and um, it's a real testament to good writing, and anybody who writes well, I think this is a market where people want good stories. So, just I agree with you. Just get out there. The story is a true story. So, it happened to me. You know. I also want to mention one more thing, and um, I will make sure you get my my rough cut or the cut of the film that, of Love and Action that you were in because you were quite good, Kamala. <laughs> Yeah. For Full disclosure Kamala was in my film Love and Action in Chicago and She played a Very feisty killer And uh, it was fun And she came to Chicago And really did a great job And what was so interesting Is that When they cut you Out of the film You had almost no lines But in my cut You have Many many lines <laughs> So I'll make sure You get a copy of that And uh, she was just fabulous That's so.
1: great Thank yeah. you Thank you very All much Alright
0: thanks Dwayne, For being on the show You're welcome uh, my film bite is, if you, if you want to be a writer, break both your ankles at the same time. <laughs> and uh, that's all for today, and we will see you next week.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.